Thank you, Kayla. Good job. Take your Bibles. Turn with me this evening to Revelation chapter 19. I appreciate you brave souls this evening. The weather's not cooperating very much, but I appreciate you making the effort to be here. I don't know if it's any kind of a prophecy or not, but my grandson's asleep on the front pew. It is a prophecy. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Revelation chapter 19. The two previous chapters, 17 and 18, give us an earthly perspective of the end times destruction that's going on. This chapter gives us a heavenly perspective of these same events. Chapter 17 and 18 as I spoke about last week, depict the gloom and the doom uh, on earth that the human race will face at the end of the tribulation period. Chapter 19 gives us a view of the rejoicing in heaven that God's judgment is finally being settled upon the earth. The scene in chapter 19 is a, is a brief glimpse of what God intends to be the experience for mankind in their relationship with himself. The marriage supper of the Lamb was one of the themes on which the Lord Jesus often taught. It's often the subject of his parables. In fact, the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25 and the parable of the wedding banquet in Matthew chapter 22 both allude to this marriage supper of the Lamb. And yet, the marriage supper of the Lamb is a subject that is greatly misunderstood. It's greatly misunderstood not because of false teaching necessarily, but because it is almost completely neglected in preaching and teaching of our day. The main source of information concerning this coming event is found here in Revelation chapter 19, especially in verses 7 through 9. I want us to begin looking tonight at chapter 19, verse 1, as we begin looking at the Alleluia Chorus. The text says, after these things, indicating that these things happen after the destruction recorded in chapter 17 and 18, and we're introduced to the four Hallelujahs. First of all, the Hallelujah for redemption, verse 1. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord, our God. Now, as I mentioned last week, the previous chapters have been dark and menacing and scary, but now things change. In fact, they change so much that a, a new word is used for the very first time. The word is Alleluia. It is Greek for hallelujah, which we discover in the Old Testament. It means praise the Lord, or literally it means praise Yahweh. It is found 24 times in Psalms. But surprisingly, this word is found only four times in the New Testament, and all of those four occasions are found in one book, in one chapter of that book, and it is right here in Revelation chapter 19. So what can be so important that all of heaven erupts with the sound of Alleluia? And the answer is clear that finally the war that began with the fall of man in the Garden of Eden has finally been won. 
Secondly, we look at the Alleluia for divine justice, verses 2 and 3. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and has avenged on her the blood of his servant shed for her. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rises up forever and ever. The destruction referred to here is more than just the destruction of the city of Babylon and the one world economic system and the one world religion. It includes everything that Babylon has stood for all down through the centuries. Essentially, it is man's rebellion against God. There is also an alleluia for worship in verse 4. And the 24 elders and four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. If we take the time to notice, <clears throat> these 24 elders are mentioned six times in the book of Revelation. And each time they're doing the same thing. They're falling on their faces before the Lord God and worshiping him. These 24 elders represent the saints. The believers of all ages, I believe, both of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then there's the Alleluia for the reign of God in verses 5 and 6. And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of many thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. The day has finally come when the Lord will have the glory and the honor he deserves and has deserved for all time. He is honored, he is exalted, and he is worshipped by all of creation. The second thing we note is the announcement of the marriage supper in verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who, called to the mar- who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God and I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Well, we want to ask and answer a few questions about this marriage supper. First of all, who are the bride and groom? The identity of the groom is very straightforward. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 2, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. That bridegroom can only be the king's son, and that, of course, is Jesus. But there is some difference of opinion as to who is the bride. Some say the bride is Israel because she is called the wife of God in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 5. But I think there are several scriptures that show us that the bride in this wedding is the church. Ephesians 5 and 25 says, Husbands, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. 
also that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Paul then sums up his teaching in verse 32 by saying, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. We, the church then, are the bride, and we have been espoused to the groom. What are the characteristics of this wedding? If we assume that the marriage of Christ that's being described here to the church will follow the pattern of marriage as described in the New Testament, then it will consist of several separate stages. First of all, there was the arrangement or selection stage. In the Bible, it was the father of the groom who arranged the marriage, who made the match, who selected the bride for his son. We're told in Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, Blessed be the God our and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we might be holy and without blame and before him in love. After that selection process, the next part of that was the bride price or the dowry was to be paid. The bride price for God the Father was the blood of his only son. Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And then the apostle Peter adds to that saying in 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. The second stage of that biblical wedding after the arrangement stage was the preparation stage or the betrothal. betrothal. This stage essentially lasted as long as it took for the groom to build a house to provide a home for his wife. In the same manner, Jesus told us that he has gone to prepare a place for us. In John chapter 14, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. The third stage of that wedding in the Bible was called the wedding procession or the marriage ceremony. On the wedding day, the groom would leave his father's house and lead a procession to go get his bride. After taking her from her home, the groom would then lead the bridal procession back to the home that he had prepared. I think this is a beautiful picture of the rapture of the church that described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, 
concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that they who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will be by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with those in the air and the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. The final stage of the wedding in biblical times was called the celebration stage or the marriage feast. As we've already noted, the great wedding banquet set out in Revelation 19, 7 7 and 8. He says, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The wedding feast was intended to be a time of great gladness full of joy and delight. There would be rejoicing and shouts of joy. The reality of the joy of this time is probably even beyond our present imaginations. After a period of feasting, the couple would settle into their new home which had been prepared by the groom. Which may lead us to the question, okay, it says the, the bride has prepared herself. Well, how does the bride make herself ready. Revelation 19.7 says, and the, the wife has made herself ready. When the marriage supper of the lamb is ready, the wife has already made herself ready. This brings out the aspect of personal responsibility as us as believers. There is first of all, the responsibility we have in relation to salvation. To be a part of the bride One has to have accepted Christ as his or her personal savior from sin. But the primary emphasis here relates to the issue of true spirituality, which results in rewards or preparation for eternity. So secondly, men must not only personally and responsibly believe in Jesus as their savior, but then as believers, as a part of the bride of Christ, They must choose to walk by the Spirit of God according to his word by faith so that they can bear fruit and produce good works. This is what is meant by the bride makes herself ready. The beautiful wedding garment is described as fine linen, clean and bright. Or white, bright and clean would be a literal translation. It symbolizes the righteous deeds produced in the life of a believer as they walk by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is represented by a Greek word used here, which is translated righteous. This word refers to a concrete expression of righteousness, the result of the use of the gifts of the Spirit that the Lord Jesus has given us to produce acts of faith. In essence, then, the church age is not only the betrothal stage, but a time where the bride is preparing her trousseau for the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
Okay, we know who the bride is. We know who the groom is. Well, who are the wedding guests? Who are the guests who have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? It's obvious that it is neither the bride nor the bridegroom that are being spoken about because the bride and the groom never have to be invited to their own wedding. It is the friends of the bride and the groom that are invited. It could not be the church, for she is the bride. John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, indicated that he was a friend of the bridegroom. John chapter 3 and verse 29 when he said, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. From that, I think we can conclude that the friends of the bride and the groom will include all those faithful believers who lived and died prior to the church age, that is, all those Old Testament saints, and in addition to them will appear all those who have received the Lord as their Savior during the tribulation period, both Jews and Gentiles. Many, if not all of them, will have given their lives as a testimony for their faith. So where and when will this marriage supper of the Lamb take place? There are two major positions concerning the time and location of the marriage supper. Some believe that the marriage supper will be held on earth after Christ returns with his bride and prior to the beginning of the millennium. Others believe that the marriage supper will be held in heaven while the events of the tribulation are unfolding on earth. Support for this position are found in the degrees with the requirements of the Jewish marriage customs in the Bible that the marriage supper be held in the bridegroom's home. If you want more explanation, you can go to the church website after we have this sermon posted. I have five factors that, that favor the marriage supper occurring in heaven. I won't go into all those right now, but if you'd like more information, that'll be in there. But no matter what eschatological viewpoint you take, the church must be raptured to heaven prior to the marriage and prior to the return from heaven with Christ. It must occur. So no matter matter whether you identify with the pre-tribulation, that's the belief that you believe that uh, the church is going to be raptured out before the tribulation period, or the mid-tribulation, also called the pre-wrath position. Some hold the fact that they believe we'll go halfway through the seven-year tribulation period. And then there's a third, which is called the post-tribulation, those who believe that it will occur at the end of the tribulation period. But whichever one of those you want to pick, the church still has to be raptured out and come back with the Lord in order for this to happen. Now, the good part. The appearance of the king in verse 11. This is the second time that a door has been opened in heaven in the book of Revelation. The first time the door in heaven was opened, it was opened so that the church, the bride of Christ, could join the Lord in heaven in in Revelation chapter 4. When this door is opened, it allows the Lord to ride out of heaven and return to the earth. The first door speaks of the rapture of the church. 
This second door in heaven speaks of the return of Christ. Revelation chapter 19 verse 11 through 13 tell us how the king will appear when he returns. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. This is not the same white horse and the same rider as Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, the rider of the white horse was the Antichrist. But here it is Christ. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like flames of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. When Jesus come, came to the earth the first time, he concealed his heavenly glory beneath the flesh of this body. The next time he comes, it will be different. He will come, we're told, on a white horse. Ancient Roman generals often rode white horses in their triumphant processions. And John sees Jesus returning as a conqueror. He's not coming the second time to die. He's coming to reign. Who is the king who is coming? Well, without a doubt, it is the resurrected, ascended, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. According to verse 12, he had a name written that no one knew except himself. What's this mysterious name? It says no one knows but him. Well, you can study all the names that are given of Jesus in the Bible, the I Am, the Rose of Sharon, Emmanuel, the Lamb of God, the Root of Jesse, the Morning Star, etc. But he's saying he's more than that. This points to the divinity of Christ because it shows that there are aspects of God which are beyond our finite ability to comprehend. He may let us in on that mystery someday. He may let us comprehend that at least more fully someday. But here's the point. <clears throat> Mankind has refused to know Jesus. Some do not use his name except as a slang word or even worse as a curse word. Now the day of grace has forever passed. They will recognize him even if they can no longer accept him. John says that his name is written on his thigh. The thigh symbolizes strength, stability, and power. In the book of Genesis chapter 32, when Jacob wrestled with the angel, the angel touched Jacob's thigh and his power to resist was broken. When Jesus comes the next time, he's not coming as a lowly carpenter. He will not be mocked and stripped and beaten and spit upon and crucified. He will come the next time as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Look with me at the fourth thing, the armies of the King. Verse 14, and the armies in heaven. I'm inviting you to circle that word in your Bible, armies. And you can write your name right there. You're in the army now. You may have never served in the army, but you're going to be in the army one time. You're going to be in God's army. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, 
followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now notice it says armies, plural, of the king. When Jesus comes back, he's not going to have armies following him. He's going to be the head of the army. While we do not know all that these armies will involve, we do know that it is plural, and there are at least two parts of this army, or two kinds of armies. The first part of this army is made of angels. There will be an army of angels because it says in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31 that when Christ returns, he will bring all the holy angels with him. Angels will be a part of that army. And secondly, part of this army will be saints. Now Jesus comes and he's leading the armies, but he doesn't have a sword in his hand. He doesn't possess a weapon at all. When he comes, Jesus will not need the weapons of this world. He will open his mouth and unleash the power of his word. And John says when he speaks, it is like a sword coming out of his mouth. Jesus just speaks and his enemies will be completely destroyed. Now this is my kind of army. I don't have to fight at all. I don't have any purpose other than cheering on the general. The king draws the armies to Armageddon. Verse 17, and then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies and gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Here's another description of that great campaign called the Battle of Armageddon. That great and terrible day has finally arrived. All the armies of the world will join forces to try and defeat the Lamb of the tribe of Judah. The king of the north comes down into the land and he is met by the king of the south coming against Israel. The very fact that the armies of the world gather together in the valley of Medigo at this very moment in time proves that God and not man is in control. It is almost beyond belief that when Jesus reveals that himself and he says every eye shall see him. And these leaders of the nations in spite of the fact that they know who this is actually attempt to assault and attack the Lord Jesus himself. And then we see the king destroys the armies at Armageddon. 
The beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with, fire, with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is a very uneven contest. When we think maybe of some of the great battles of the world, we might consider Desert Storm, for example, the land and air battle of the Persian Gulf War. That was an amazingly swift victory. The Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein promised that it would be the mother of all battles. But from the time they actually attacked until their objective was obtained was 100 hours. 100 hours. That's the most amazing battle in modern warfare. Yet 100 hours is going to seem like an eternity compared to the duration of the battle of Armageddon. It's going to be over before it starts. Because all Jesus has to do is speak. And when he speaks, the sword will go forth and the armor will be absolutely decimated. It says that two members of the unholy trinity... The beast, who is the Antichrist, and the false prophet are immediately captured and thrown into the lake of fire. The third member, Satan, or the dragon, as he's called in Revelation, will join them at the end of the millennium in chapter 20, verse 10. And those who don't believe that hell is real and don't believe that it is forever, need to consider that when it says in chapter 20 and verse 10 that Satan is cast in a lake of fire, it also says that the false prophet and the Antichrist are still there. Still there, still very much alive, still enduring the torment that their sins so justly deserve. Sometimes hear people say, I don't believe that God would send anybody to hell. A loving God would never send anybody to hell. And I agree with you. He doesn't. God doesn't send anybody to hell. They choose to go there. In fact, they climb over every obstacle he puts in their path to keep them from going there. Every time they've heard the word of God, every time they've been tested, testified to every time he has brought into their life someone to share the good news with him they have climbed over that obstacle in order that they might continue in their path of destruction those who end up there end up there not because it was God's intent God did not create hell for human beings he created hell for Satan and those who rebelled with him Everyone else was a volunteer. Isn't that amazing? And one of the amazing things about the book of Revelation is in the end times, 
as times get more and more difficult and as people look at the things that are happening in the world, they'll say, that's God. And yet they will not turn to God in repentance, but become more and more convinced and more and more uh, entangled in their sin. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that you love us.